0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. In April of
1: 1961, that is 61 years ago, a man hurtled into space for the first time. Some of you are old enough to uh, remember that event. I don't know if you remember his name. He wasn't an American. He was of what nationality? The Russian. Remember his name? Yeah, some of you do. Yuri Gagarin. Yuri Gagarin, a colonel and then later a hero of the Soviet Union, the nation's highest award, He orbited a great 91 miles above Earth. One orbit, it took 108 minutes, and then he landed in Kazakhstan, and the rest of his life was changed. It was a brief life because only seven years later he was killed in an air training accident. When he came back, supposedly, many of you know, supposedly he said, I went up to space And I did not encounter God. I looked and I looked and I looked, but I did not see God. Well, it's disputed whether or not Yuri said that. Uh, That's what Pravda and that's what the Soviet machine said that he said. In fact, if you do a little bit of research online, you'll discover that there are those that believe that, in fact, he was a believer and that he was an encourager of the church but he, that he remained silent because of some testimony that some of his friends gave. But he remained silent so that he could stay safe in the cosmonaut program. Other Soviet cosmonauts, however, we know were ardent believers. Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk into space in 1965. Gregory Gretschko, who piloted three Soyuz missions in the 1970s, both strong believers And today's cosmonauts, it's very interesting, you may have seen a picture of three of them in the back of their uh, setting there in the uh, International Space Station, there are icons from the church, and it is not infrequent that priests anoint the launches of uh, rockets and missiles in Russia. That's quite a change, especially when you consider the fact that um, U.S. astronauts are forbidden to put any religious artifacts on the walls or any political statements you know that's interesting isn't it the whole idea of thinking that you can see god by going into space it's a futile search isn't it we know that from scripture why because he is spirit and we can see cannot see him nobody has seen him he is what he is supernatural he is above nature above all and he is of course purely and completely holy and the sinful taint of our infirmities cannot touch him but someday we're given this promise not now but someday we will see him in all of his glory through his mediator the son jesus christ but today the search for visible god is futile science would say many scientists would say there is no god because of, really, the fact that we can't see him. We can't prove that he's he's there. Gallup poll in in 2001 said that in America, 90% of the population said that they believe there is a God. Uh, That's wonderful. But recently, in 2017, that number had dropped to 79%, and only 64% were convinced Pew Research shows much the same conclusion today, that 80% of the people in America still say they believe in God, but what's interesting is 23% of them say they don't believe in the God of the Bible as we know it, some kind of force they might believe in. 49% of those that are under 50 do not believe, and what is alarming is that of the younger millennials, that's what some would call Gen Z, 30%. Not 20, but 30% say they do not believe that there's a God. And of course, in Europe, it is much more problematic. 27% of Britons only say they believe in God, and 41% don't. What's really alarming to me is, listen to this, 56% of people that call themselves Christians in Britain 56% of the Christians do not believe in the God of the Bible. That is rather alarming. In France, 50%, 52% of the people say no, they don't believe there's a God. In East Germany, 51%. In Belgium, the number rises to 58%. In the Scandinavian countries, the average is 63%. And in the Netherlands, almost 70% of the people are agnostic or atheists. Those are polls, those are numbers, those are, uh, those are statistics, and they're alarming. But we are here today to proclaim, in fact, that we know with certainty that the human polls are not accurate, that the biblical revelation affirms to us that he is. God exists. And that's foundational, of course, to all the rest of what we believe. In Revelation 1, we have the scriptural poll that tells us what God believes. Beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, that is, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and father to him. We give glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, verse number seven. Behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. And then verse 8. I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Bible clearly tells us that God exists, that He is The biblical claim in this passage is that he is the I am. God exists. This is how he first described himself, we know, to Israel through Moses in Exodus, the third chapter. What does it mean when he says, I am, that is Jehovah, I am? He's saying, I am eternally self-existent, I depend on no other, and I am person. I am. You know, in the Old Testament, it's applied in many different ways. I am the one who exists. I am the one who creates. I am the one who reveals. I am the one who loves and sustains. I am the one who is able to deliver you, Moses. Go and tell my people that I am going I am going to deliver them. In the New Testament, the phrase is used literally 38 times in Greek. Ego, Ime, or some variation of that. 38 times to describe, and usually from the mouth of Jesus himself, jesus christ as the incarnate son of god and it expresses his divinity here in this passage the one that we read just a moment ago in verse uh, verse 8 the i am is speaking about the lord god almighty and so we see there is an equation that the son of god is of the same nature as the lord god almighty i am the alpha and the omega there are a couple of implications here I think of that statement the first is that he is saying that he's creator and sustainer I am the beginning I am the alpha he started everything and I am the omega he ends everything and therefore he also sustains everything in between there's another implication that he is eternal he existed in other words before every if he was there and he started everything he was there before it And if He's there when everything ends, He continues. He is eternal. He will never end. Four times in Scripture, in the New Testament, this phrase is also used, not of the Lord God Almighty, but of Jesus Christ Himself. And once again, that reiterates that He also is divine and and eternal, that He is the Word that existed before everything came into existence. And then it says, Who is and who was and who is to come. And this, of course, underscores his eternal, never ending nature. Reiterated twice in this passage, in verse 4 and verse 8. And then again in chapter 4, it speaks of his holiness, not just once, not twice, but three times. The host in heaven proclaim, Holy, 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 the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. You can't get any clearer than the witness from the book of Revelation. He is. What is the evidence that we have that he exists? What scientific evidence do we have? What philosophic evidence? How how do we then engage those, the 68% in a place like the Netherlands, who claim that there is no God? How do we engage them in a gentle and yet firm way with evidence to convince them. The Word of God says it. But most people who believe that there is no God will not listen to the Word of God because they do not trust it. They do not believe that it is divinely inspired. Well, there's several approaches that have been used by apologists, and you're familiar with most of these. There's the rational approach, which we call the ontological approach. There's the moral approach that sets an axis for us and the philosophic term for that is axiology, there is an intuitive approach for the existential beingness of us that kind of connects with God. There are historical analogies that can be used. And there's simple human logic, cause and effect. Many of the arguments are drawn from cosmology, that is, looking at the cosmos and the evidence from it and looking at the end of things. And we're going to be dealing with those in four weeks. But today I want to deal with the others very briefly and focus mainly on cause and effect. How then do we as Christians make a logical case for the existence of God based on what we read in Scripture? Not to, not to dismiss it, it's based, but it's based on it. When people will not listen to Scripture, what can we say to them? Well, one is the rational approach. Anselm in the 11th century issued what he wrote, what he called the ontological proof. It goes something like this God is being greater than anything else we can conceive. Number one. Number two, you see, it is greater to exist in reality than it is only to be conceived in the mind. Number three, God must exist in reality. If not, he would not be the greatest possible being. Okay, now, folks, did you follow that? I've looked at it for years And examined it again and again and again And you know it, really, it sounds suspiciously to me Like a circular argument It's one of those rational arguments That may make sense to philosophers But folks are not going to be convinced by that I think I, I think the best that we might do with a rational argument Would be to say something like this I, This would be my interpretation of it Okay, God is being and he's being that is greater than anything That we can think about Okay now where did that thought come from? That thought was either generated by my mind or it was generated by the one who is greater than I am, the greatest being. Well, I'm not the greatest being, and I cannot conceive of the greatest being on my own. Therefore, the thought had to be put in my mind by whom? By the greatest of all beings, and therefore the greatest being exists.
0: Now, I have to admit,
1: you know, I think if I am a 21st century agnostic or atheist and somebody tries to convince me with that I think they're talking in circles it may convince philosophers I'm not so sure it's convincing to them there's the moral argument and and that is that there is a sense of morality and conscience of right and wrong that has permeated and run through all of human history and the scripture validates that idea Romans 2 for when Gentiles Who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law unto themselves. He's talking about the law of conscience. In that day they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Yet their conscience, you see, bears witness. And their thoughts, alternatively, accusing and then defending themselves on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men according to Jesus Christ. There is the human conscience. And the fact that human matter has, human beings that are matter have a conscience in them, and there is a remarkable similarity around the globe of what people consider to be right and wrong. The Greek philosophers, Pythagoras, it wasn't just conscience, he said there's an individual accountability to what he described as being a divine being. Socrates, a couple of generations later, responded by saying there is an inner voice, a spiritual inner voice within us to which we respond. Roman philosophers like Seneca spoke about this kind of conscience and gives it almost a divine kind of connection. Immanuel Kant, the agnostic philosopher of the 19th century, who spoke of the ultimate good, reminded us that there is such a thing as the categorical imperative. In other words, there's such a thing as right and wrong... It's not relativistic, but there is such a thing as right and wrong, and we are responsible to the ultimate good. Now, he wasn't speaking about God in personal terms, but the point is this. Throughout history, people have had an understanding of things that are right and wrong, and they have a conscience that connects with something or someone out there. Well, even then, that argument may not be fully convincing there's human intuition there's a need for the divine as far back as the 4th century the Bishop of Milan Ambrose spoke about this and then in the 17th century more popularly known today Blaise Pascal and of course that is the idea of the God shaped vacuum this is the existential argument it's the intuitive argument it is that somehow I need To connect with someone that is bigger than I am and who is not just myself. Pascal said this What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in a man's true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him. Seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss, you see this vacuum that we have in us, can be filled only with an infinite, immutable object, in other words, by God himself. What they're saying is we have an innate and intuitive desire to connect with something beyond ourselves. And the Bible says that's God. That may still not be quite convincing. There are historical analogies. Throughout history, there have been other patterns that fit within the pattern of Scripture to some degree. Legal codes, the Codex of Ur in the 21st century B.C., and the next century, the code of the Sumerian city, Eshnunna, and then later the code of Hammurabi in the 18th century B.C., all have very similar legal codes that resemble what we find later in the Mosaic Law. They're not identical, but what that says is maybe there is something behind that that connects them. The flood stories, not just the flood story of Noah in Genesis, but Manu and the fish, Matsya in Hinduism, the Deucalion of Prometheus in Greek mythology and in the Gilgamesh epic of Babylonia. There are traditions around the globe that have also flood stories. Well, now what's behind that? There are monotheistic-like beliefs in other religions. They're not identical to what we find in Scripture, but there was a form of Egyptian monotheism in the 14th century that was proclaimed by Pharaoh uh, Akhenaten. Zoroastrianism believes in the God Ahura Mazda, and they see him to be the the supreme God. They have a concept of heaven and hell, judgment day, and messianic figures. The Baha'i faith of oneness of God, they believe in a creator of all creatures and forces in the universe. A personal God who is unknowable, inaccessible, and the source of all revelation, who is eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, and ever-present. Does that sound familiar? We don't believe in the Baha faith and their understanding of God. But there are some similarities. There are even some Hindu sects that are virtually monotheistic in their worship. One of Vishnu and one of Shiva. Sikhism is a kind of variation of monotheism. They believe in one timeless, omnipresent, and supreme creator. Plato spoke of the ultimate one. Aristotle spoke of the prime mover. And Plato and the Stoics and Philo the Jew in the time of Jesus spoke about the Logos. My point is this. There are artifacts, there are patterns in history around the globe in other faith systems, other legal codes, and other histories of such things as the flood, which are remarkably similar to what we find in Scripture, even though they are not theistic and they're not Christian. That still may not be all that convincing. So let me come to human logic. Let's deal with that for a few minutes. I guess the question that I would ask when you think about does God exist is, is there a beginning? Was there a beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hmm. Stop and think about that for a moment. In the beginning, can we think of eventually, someday, the universe coming to an end? Sure. Can we get our mind around that? Yeah. Can we really get our mind around the idea of there never being a beginning? No. There had to be a beginning. There had to be a beginning to the universe, Um, there had to be a cause. There had to be an ultimate cause. How can we even begin to grasp the idea of no beginning? What are the implications of this? I think most of us would say that everything, every event has to have a cause. And that means there must have been an ultimate cause. If you stop and think about it, well, one thing causes another, causes another, causes another. There cannot be such a thing as an infinite regression of causes. There has to have been something at the very beginning. Here's the problem. Then when we talk with people who do not believe about God, and we talk about this idea of cause and effect, did someone or did something start everything? And another question is, why do we even exist today? Has the universe always just existed? Is the universe its own cause or did something cause it? There are three possibilities to answer that question. One is that matter Stuff, things that we see, hear, feel, smell, and touch that that is eternal. That nature is the ultimate cause. There's no need for God, you see. God doesn't exist, but nature and stuff and matter has always existed. There never was a beginning to the universe and that is what we call naturalism. It defies human logic because where did that stuff come from? But this is the position that is held by agnostics and atheists it must be it's the presupposition frankly of many many scientists that matter is eternal evolution comes out of that philosophy that idea there's a second option and that is god or some immaterial cause is eternal that the being of god or some immaterial cause cause the rest of this in other words god is the ultimate cause of everything God alone, God alone is not of nature. And what, what is the word we use for that? He is what? Supernature. He is supernatural. There was definitely a beginning of the universe, and it was started by God. This point of view is not held by atheists. It is not held by agnostics. It's not held by 68% of the people in places like the Netherlands. It is held by theists. Theists are Christians, Jews, Muslims. It's interestingly also held by deists. Deists who say that God created the universe and then he stepped back and he's not involved in it anymore. There's a third alternative matter is eternal, or God is eternal, or both God and nature matter are eternal. You see, neither caused the other. They have coexisted from the very beginning. God's not supernatural, he's a part of nature. There was no beginning. All things, stuff, matter, and God have coexisted eternally. It's held by two points of view, two worldviews. Pantheists. Pantheists say that God is nature, and nature is God. There's a, a divinity to nature, if you will. Panentheists say that, in fact, God and nature are mutually independent. God is nature's mind, and nature is God's body. We believe in the theistic solution that is found in Scripture. Here's the crucial question, then, that I would ask you Was there a beginning? Theists say there there was, and so do theists. Most other worldviews say no. Until recently, there was little scientific evidence to answer that question Was there a beginning? You see, opponents to that idea, and this is important, opponents base their conclusion on assumptions. Assumptions of human reason. And they would say, no, there was no beginning. Believers in Scripture, theists, Jews, Muslims, and Christians have their beliefs based on convictions. Convictions on for Christians... The Bible and God's Word. God created everything, and the very first words of Scripture are what? In the what? Beginning. In the beginning, God made from nothing, Barah, the heavens and the earth. There was nothing. There was no matter. There was no nature. There was simply God in His oneness. Wow. So who's right? Was there a beginning of the universe or not? Well, interestingly enough, if, you have been, if, if you've read any science in the last 50 years, you know that, that science gives an answer. Astronomy and physics both give us answers. Astronomy proves that there was a beginning. Edwin Hubble in 1929 discovered that the galaxy is what? It is expanding. And 35 years later, in 1964, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson then detected a low-level cosmic microwave radiation echo very faint in space. It had the same pattern of wavelengths, of light and heat, of a huge explosion. And their discovery had been predicted by, of all people, Soviet astrophysicists earlier that year. And it led to what was called, What is the Theory?, the Big Bang Theory. And I'm not talking about a program on TV. The universe exploded and came into existence just short of 14 billion years ago. That is a verifiable scientific fact. The universe had a beginning. Physics supports this conclusion. The second law of thermodynamics, or the law of entropy, or the law of decay, says this. The amount of usable energy in a closed system, constantly decreases. The amount of usable energy in a closed system is constantly decreasing. The universe is a closed system. And because of that, what we know about is energy doesn't disappear, but usable energy is declining, and matter that produces it is declining, and it means it's finite, it means if it's going to have an end, it must have had a what? A beginning. Mattergy, matter and energy will come to an end someday because they had a beginning. And the scripture says that it all will come to an end someday. And God orchestrates it. There are testimonies from other scientists from whom you would not expect these testimonies. Albert Einstein, in his general theory of relativity, at first refused to admit that there had been a beginning. He said, no, there wasn't a beginning. But later he came to the conclusion that, yes, there was a beginning. That matter had to have been created. Now, he did not say that it was the God of the Scripture that created it, but he did say it was created. Fred Hoyle, English astronomer who was an atheist, who derisively looked at this theory, and he's the one who named it the Big Bang Theory, (laughs) later converted to theism because he looked at the complexity of life And he said, there must be a creator. The conclusion is that scientific evidence proves that there was a beginning. There was an originating cause. It suggests that there must be a creator. And it suggests that the biblical account must be true. But there's still disagreement. There's still people that would say no. They would say, well, there may be a cause, but it may be an immaterial cause. It may not be God as a person. It may, it may not be the God of Scripture. We do believe that it is. Now, we're going to examine that issue in four weeks. In four weeks, we're going to come to another controversial subject, and it's evolution. And what does the Scripture say about creation and evolution? And we'll deal with that when we come to that point. So this cause, this beginning, is it God or not? We will look at the cosmos and we'll look at design to see whether or not we can verify from science as much as possible that God of the Bible exists. You know, the wonders of science, some of which I've shared this morning, support Scripture. The the, The Hubble Space Telescope launched... 32 years ago, named for Edwin Hubble, that former atheist who became a theist, 29 years after Yuri Gagarin had this phenomenal space flight that lasted one orbit, they put the Hubble spacecraft into orbit 340 miles above the earth. It circles around the globe every 97 minutes, 15 times a day. And it confirms the Big Bang Theory, and it confirms the data from it, confirms that the the universe is not only expanding, but it is accelerating in its speed. Free of the obstructions of clouds and atmospheric distortions, when it was launched, it could see back in time 1.5 billion years. Wow! But it also was designed so that it could be repaired and updated and reconstructed. And that's happened five times. Astronauts and cosmonauts have gone up there and worked on the Hubble Space Telescope. And with the improvements now, what they have done is they have enabled that telescope to look almost to the edge of the universe, to see 96% of the way back to the beginning. And to see light that was generated almost 13 and a half billion years ago, it's about 480 million years short of the beginning. That's phenomenal. But you know what they did on Christmas Day this past year, 10 days ago? Did you keep track of it? You've been keeping track of your space and telescopes. They launched a new one, the James Webb Telescope, Space Telescope, named after one of the NASA directors of the 1970s. And it is not going to be 340 miles above the Earth. It's going to be 930,000 miles out in space. The orbit's going to take about six months. Just twice a year, it's going to orbit the Earth. It is five and a half times more powerful in its capability than the Hubble telescope. It can see things 100 times fainter than the Hubble telescope and it's going to push our scientific vision not to 96% toward the edge of the universe but 98 and a half percent within 200 million years of the beginning of the universe that is amazing and you see a lot of the data that it collects supports the conclusions of scripture but there are limitations friends of science There are limitations of Gagarin's flight. There are limitations of the Hubble telescope. There are limitations of the James Webb telescope. No telescope, I'm going to make a radical prediction here. No telescope is ever going to see God. You see, he's beyond the universe. No scientific laboratory is going to be able to prove that he exists, nor should we want it to. Why? Because if we were ever able to prove that God exists absolutely 100% empirically in the scientific lab, then all we have done is created a test tube God. All we have done is created an idol of our own imagination and human invention. Science, as great as it is, will never absolutely prove that God exists. Nor can any of these other arguments that I have laid out to you. No human institution No history book, no historical analogies that are similar will ever prove absolutely that God exists. The Bible is more than a history book. No philosophy, no philosophic ontological argument ever will prove that God exists. Absolutely, because God's foolishness is wiser than men's. No sociological statement or theory will prove God exists. God is not a social construct, and He's not a political construct. That's what Nietzsche tried to convince us. God is dead. He wasn't saying that God existed and then He died. He was saying we invented God, and now our idea of God is dead. God is not a social construct. He is not a political statement. He is not a philosophy. God is being. So, what is the ultimate proof? What is the ultimate proof that God exists? It simply can come only from faith faith in God's revelation. Hebrews 11 says this By faith, we understand that the worlds were rep- prepared by the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You see, the Word was before all. Through Him all things were made. Nothing was made that was not made by Him. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. What is the author of Hebrews telling us? God existed, and He brought all of matter into existence. We must have faith in the Word of God. But it has to be more than just knowledge. You see, if we try to prove that God exists based on knowledge, we will always fail because our knowledge is weak. Our knowledge is imperfect. And even if we were able to do so, that's not enough. For us to say God exists and we know that God exists, that's not enough because even Satan believes that. Satan believes it and knows it better than we do. What kind of faith are we talking about? We're talking about a saving faith that goes further than just acknowledging God exists. A faith that not only says, I believe He exists, but I trust Him and I will obey Him. It is faith that is in in relationship with Him. It is a faith that personally walks with Him. It is a faith that knows that He observes what we do now and He's not just there, He is here. He is in our midst. It is a faith that believes that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in that only begotten son that came and died on the cross and shed his blood for our sins so that we might be redeemed and set free from sin and death and we might have a place in heaven in his heavenly home, if we believe that, we will have everlasting life. And though we die, we will live again because he lives forevermore. He is, he was, and he will always be to come, the scripture tells us. And when we believe that, and we live to please Him, and we trust Him, that is the only final infallible proof that He exists. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much that You've given us the marvels of science, that You've given us minds to reason that you've given us historic examples, that you've given us a conscience, that you've given us many, many ways that bear witness to your being and your presence. But most of all, we thank you that you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, who came and who walked this earth incarnately so that people saw him and they felt him and they touched him and they beheld your glory in the everlasting word, Jesus Christ, the Logos. And they, those apostles, then bear witness. And we read the scripture And we know that you resurrected him from the dead. We know that you have glorified him. We know that he now is at your right hand, at your very throne in heaven, and he makes intercession for us. We believe these things because you have given us the witness of your spirit. Your spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are your children if we believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And our prayer is this morning that if there is one who has heard your word today, from John's revelation, if there's one who has heard your word today from the convicting power of your Holy Spirit that is stirring their soul, that is stirring their mind, that is stirring them to a response, that they will give themselves, they will surrender themselves to your Son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and say, I know he lives. I know he lives. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ferris, Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. This morning, if you're watching online, how might you respond as you maybe sing with us? How might you respond beyond that? We would encourage you to live a life that pleases God. And the first step is that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that is your way of affirming, yes, God not just exists, but he lives as the great I am to walk beside you every step of the way.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gambrel Street Baptist Church sermon podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ. To Learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.